Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open with me in your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I began a series of messages in the book of Romans last Sunday. And uh, we will continue in there for a while. I uh, have preached through Romans before about 18 years ago. And I listened to a sermon or two uh, recently and uh, felt like they were unrelieved disasters, actually. So after 18 years, and uh, now I don't even have those messages. They're only in uh, audible form because uh, they were preached before paper was invented, I believe. So I don't know where they went, but uh, looking through Romans again, I think uh, a better job could certainly be done by an older man now, hopefully with more wisdom. Because this is a great book, a great, great book. Many have said if they were stranded on an island by themselves, there was only one book of the Bible. It would be Romans. It would be Romans. The Apostle Paul outlines a treatise, a theological paper, basically, uh, telling us about things like justification by faith and the righteousness of Christ and the power of the gospel. Indeed, this book itself and passages in it have had a huge impact on Christians throughout the centuries. To name just two, uh, Martin Luther was reading one time in the very passage that we're reading now. When he came to faith in Christ, and God used him to spark the Protestant Reformation. And hundreds of years before that, St. Augustine stumbled on Romans 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh. And he was marvelously converted, and his life was changed forever. So we're going to spend some time in Romans. Last time we looked at Paul and the Gospel. And this morning, we're going to look at Paul and uh, the Romans, and also Paul, which, as he relates to evangelism in our passage. In fact, the, the two points was Paul's pattern for fellowship in verses 8 through 13. And he shows this by his love for the Roman Christians. And then secondly, Paul's pattern for evangelism. And we'll look at that in verses 14 through 17. So with the outline of the message, join me in prayer, and let's ask the Lord to bless our time and His Word together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in Your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and Him only. And so we pray that Your Holy Spirit would be our Master Teacher. And that, Lord, You would move in our hearts, some for salvation and others for discipleship. May you get all the glory for what you will do as you interact in our lives with your powerful and precious word. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, notice, first of all, Paul's pattern for fellowship. And we see this uh, with four elements, I would say, in verses 8 through 13. Uh, number one, he thanks God for them in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. What does Paul mean by this statement? Your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Well, wherever the church had spread, there was news of this church in Rome. Because Rome was the capital city. Rome had everything in the world that the world can offer. And so it was really an amazing thing for a young church to be started in Rome. And Paul didn't start this church. He wasn't familiar with these 
particular Christians. But he's saying, in essence, everywhere that the gospel is proclaimed, all over the empire, you better believe they hear about this little infant church in the capital city of the empire. By faith, Paul was not referring to the initial trust in Christ that brings salvation, but to the persevering trust that brings spiritual strength and growth. It was a marvelous thing to be a Christian in Rome, but it was also a very difficult thing. As the years went by, Rome would be the center of Caesar worship, and depending on who was in office as the Caesar, it would be a risky thing, a life-threatening thing to be a Christian in this particular city. But he thanks God for them, and then he prays for them. Look at verses 9 and 11. For God, whom I serve in my spirit with the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests. And Paul's apostolic ministry, preaching and prayer, or praying, always go together. And he says that even though most of them are unknown to him personally, he intercedes for them unceasingly, and always, that is, regularly. Now, Paul is not making some sort of pious statement. You'll notice he says, as God is my witness. He's telling the truth. And he calls God to witness his statement. And Paul's particular prayer is that now, at last, by God's will, whatever God's will may be, that he might be able to come to them. It's a humble petition. Paul doesn't try to impose his will on God or to claim to know what God's will might be. Instead, he simply submits his will to God's will. What a marvelous pattern. And so he thanks God for them. He prays for them ceaselessly. He also longs to see them. Look at verses 11 and 12. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, uh, both yours and mine. And so Paul longs to visit these believers in Rome for two reasons. Number one, to impart some spiritual gift to you. Now, it's important to note uh, what Paul is talking about here. The Holy Spirit is the one who imparts uh, spiritual gifts. We learn in other places in Scripture. So what does Paul mean? Well, perhaps he's referring to his own teaching or exhortation which he hopes to give them when he arrives. Although there is an intentional indefiniteness about his statement, perhaps because at this stage he does not know what their main spiritual needs will be. So Paul says, I long to come. I long to come and serve you. But then he catches himself in verse 12, almost as if he doesn't want things to seem in balance, as if all he can do is give, and all they can do is receive. No, he goes on and tries to clarify a bit that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by each other's faith. And so he wants to impart some spiritual gift to them, but he also wants to encourage the Romans, and he wants to be encouraged by them. You know, missionaries can learn a lot from people they serve. Whenever we go as missionaries to foreign countries, we need to be students of their culture and not just come in as Americans to do things the way we do them. That's not loving, and it certainly isn't sensitive to the Holy Spirit's move in those in other cultures and other countries. Pastors can learn a lot from church members. We learn from each other. The pastor is not the enlightened one. 
know, we, uh, we learn from each other as Christians, as we grow together. Well, he longs to see them. He thanks God for them. He prays for them constantly. And he has planned to visit them often. Look at verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some spiritual fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul has been prevented many times from visiting the Roman Christians and the Roman church. He doesn't say why or what has kept him from visiting. Perhaps the most likely explanation is the one he will mention towards the end of his letter in chapter 15, namely that his evangelistic work in and around Greece has not yet been completed. You find that in chapter 15, verse 22. Why had he tried to visit them? He gives the answer. He says that I might obtain some spiritual fruit among you. And the idea expressed here is that of gathering fruit, not that of bearing it. In other words, he hopes to win some converts in Rome just as among the other Gentiles. And that's certainly in order because Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he would naturally want to engage in evangelistic reaping in the capital city of Rome, the capital of the Gentile world. And so in summary, the apostle Paul demonstrates a pattern, I believe, of Christian, authentic Christian fellowship here. Believers loving each other, thanking God for each other, praying for each other, using our gifts to strengthen and encourage each other, a longing to be with each other, and overcoming obstacles in getting together. This is the essence of Christian fellowship. This is what the body of Christ should look like. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul's pattern for fellowship amongst the Romans should be our pattern of fellowship. One of my regrets after 18 years of ministry here is that we are kind of a centered church. We're not a neighborhood church. And so the bulk of what we do happens on Sunday. But there needs to be times of gathering together, of meeting with one another. We strengthen each other. We encourage each other whenever we get together. And so we try to plan other events where we can participate in life together. Let me challenge you. Let me challenge myself at that as a confirmed introvert who can spend much time alone. We need each other. We need to pour out our hearts and share our concerns. We need to pray for each other. We need to pray for our children. We need to help each other when we're down, when we're discouraged, when we lose a job, when a child goes astray. We need each other. And that's how we grow in the body of Christ. Let me challenge you to a biblical pattern, Paul's pattern, for Christian fellowship. And now I want to spend the bulk of the time in the latter verses, Paul's pattern for evangelism, verses 14 through 17. And I want you to notice three things in Paul's pattern for evangelism. Number one, his sense of obligation or debt to the world concerning the gospel. His sense of obligation or debt to the world. Number two, his personal experience of God's power. And we see that in verse 16. And then thirdly, his personal experience of God's righteousness. So first of all, his sense of obligation. Paul's words 
can be striking. I'm under obligation, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's words are indeed striking because they're the exact opposite of the attitude of many in the contemporary church. People nowadays, and I include myself in this, we tend to regard evangelism sometimes as an optional extra and consider that they are conferring a favor on God whenever we engage in it. No! Paul makes it very clear here. Number one, I have a sense of obligation or a debt to the world. Technically, it should say debtor. I am under obligation should be translated, I am a debtor, as the authorized version has. You can see the obligation with the debt. They're really one and the same. Now, there are two possible ways, you think about this, to be in debt. Number one, I could borrow money. Somebody will loan me $1,000, and I have an obligation to pay them back. Well, Paul didn't owe the Romans anything necessarily like that, but the second way of a debt is when somebody gives me money to give to somebody else. Now I have an obligation, not to the person who gave me the funds, but to the person that they should get to. And that's exactly what Paul felt with the gospel. Paul believed that Jesus Christ saved him, opened his eyes, and as a result of that, his life-changing experience on the road to Damascus, he was to give the gospel to others. He had what we call an informational obligation. And so does every believer. Paul even saw himself that way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7. He said, I have been entrusted with the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, he called himself a steward of the mysteries of God. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, he said, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. As apostle to the Gentiles, he was particularly in debt to the Gentile world, both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, literally the barbarians both to the wise and the foolish. These couplets may point to differences of nationality or culture or language or intelligence and level of education. Paul said the gospel is for everyone, no matter where they are, no matter who they are. The gospel is for all. These expressions cover the whole Gentile humanity. And it was because of this sense of debt to them that he could write, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Now, similarly, we are debtors to the world, even though we are not apostles. If the gospel has to come to us, as it has, we have no liberty to keep it to ourselves. Nobody may claim a monopoly on the gospel. God's good news is for sharing. And we are under obligation to make it known to others. And it's universally regarded as dishonorable thing to leave a debt unpaid. Please hear my words this morning. This is a debt, an obligation without shame. And we Christians, some way, somehow, if we have truly come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't help but find a way to share him. Paul considered preaching or sharing the gospel as an obligation, as a debt. 
The modern mood is one of reluctance, and Paul's was one of eagerness and enthusiasm. It's a debt that needs to be discharged. Consider that this week. When you get around your friends, your neighbors, people all around you. The Bible makes it clear in First Peter chapter 1 that we are like precious seed planted all over the place. And you come in contact with people I will never come in contact with. And God would use you to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a neighbor, even with a family member, with a friend. Well, it goes on to say, not only do I see it as a, a debt, and that's very instrumental in my evangelism, I also have a personal experience of God's power. Look at verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. I think many of us would have to confess, if we're honest, that we are ashamed of the gospel. And Paul declared that he was not. Jesus himself warned his disciples against being ashamed of him, which shows that he anticipated they might be. And Paul gave the same instruction to Timothy in a similar admonition. James Stewart of Edinburgh, in a sermon text one time on this text, made the following comment, quote, There's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. You know, we live in a very secular time, but Paul's experience is worse. Rome was the center of imperial pride and power. People spoke of it with awe. The Roman army controlled the whole known world at this time. The navy had advances in uh, navigation and powerful warships. The Roman roads were the best in all the world. Roman architecture was unsurpassed. And the technology. You see, Rome was the symbol of the boastful pride of life. Rome communicated real power. As he's saying, this is the real world. The spiritual realm, what is that? Who is this Apostle Paul coming in and talking about some a Jew that died on a stick outside the wall of Jerusalem? What difference does that make? No, the real world is one of material. The real world is one of matter, not spirituality. So Paul had many reasons to feel reluctant or embarrassed as we do. You know, we're living in a time when a people, the old way of doing evangelism doesn't work. And what I mean by that is we live in a society that is so biblically illiterate. There is no heaven to some people. There is no hell. There is no afterlife. There is no judgment. There is no accountability for my actions. And so we say, where do we start? Well, probably the same place we always need to start. Because far from being a time where we shouldn't share the gospel, this is a great time to be the church of Jesus Christ and share the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul knew, and he said in other places, whenever the gospel is preached, there is contempt, there is disagreement, there is even hostility toward it. But also, God uses it when the power of the gospel goes forward in a person's life. And sometimes, the person you think is the furthest away from the kingdom of God is the very one where the power of the gospel will go off like a bomb if someone would share it with them. And there's such a blessing. You realize when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ and you see it, take root in somebody's life, that is so encouraging for your faith. You're seeing God at work. 
It's an amazing thing. I had a guy call me the other day. Hadn't seen him in 30 years. A friend of mine from Orlando. And uh, he told me his name, and I was shocked to hear from him. I thought, you know, we just lose contact forever. He said, you know why I'm calling you today? I said, no, I have no idea. I just want to connect. And he said, no. 30 years ago today, you shared the gospel with me. You came to my home, and I remembered the event. I came to his home. He was an African-American young man, 16 years old, there in uh, Orlando. I went to his house. His brothers were playing cards and uh, doing some other things that probably were not to be done or legal. And there was noise and loud music in the place, and I began to share the gospel with him with Dwight Singleton. And tears came down his eyes, and he prayed to receive Christ. And he said, I want you to know that I've been walking with him ever since for 30 years now. And I'm also a Baptist pastor, pastor in a Baptist church. I couldn't believe it. But why should that surprise me? Because the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. Paul had many reasons to be reluctant and embarrassed. We have many reasons. Because our culture is turning away from spiritual things. Or it's turning to a spiritism that has nothing to do with Christ and nothing to do with truth. There are many people involved in that sort of thing. And the world is coming more and more hostile to the gospel, to religion, to Christ. Paul says it's the power of God and the salvation. It's what's really real. It was real to him. How did Paul know? How do we overcome the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, he tells us it's the power of God and the salvation. Some people despise it for its weakness, but it is, in fact, the power of God for salvation. And Paul knew this. You see, the power behind the gospel, I believe, is largely love. Love. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And when you truly experience the love of God in Christ Jesus, you experience power. That's why Paul wrote so much about love. He said, I want you to know the length and depth and height and breadth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That's why he could say, if I don't preach the gospel, woe is me, for I am compelled to preach the gospel. Why? Because of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Whenever you experience God's love for you, it supersedes every other love known to you. And it enables you to love yourself and to love others. Because love is the most powerful force, I believe, in the universe. And God intended it to be that way because God is love. And when you recognize His love for you, it changes everything. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, if faith, hope, and love abide, everything else goes away. And the greatest of these is love. The love of Christ compels us. This man who was single, this man who was uncomely, scholars say, and I mentioned it briefly last week, that Paul was bow-legged, tall-headed, and he may have had an eye disease, which disfigured him. He was, by his own admission, not a good speaker. 
And so in this Roman great world, he didn't have much to offer. But when God demonstrated his love to Paul, and he was converted by the power of the gospel, it changed everything. And Paul realized how much God loved him before the foundation of the world, and that he sent his own son to die in his place to take the penalty for his sins. It changed Paul. And this man who used to hunt down Christians and incarcerate Christians and kill Christians is now praying for them, loving them, longing to see them. Do you see the change? What would it be like if all of us had that kind of change in our life? Now, we're not the Apostle Paul, no. But whenever a man or a woman comes to faith in Christ, there needs to be a demonstration of power in your life a sense of who you are, a sense of contentment with God's love, and, yes, power to share it with someone else. Power to put off sin. Power to recognize something in the Word of God and say, I want to be obedient. Listen, we Christians don't offer more good advice. We offer power. That's what the gospel is. There are plenty of religions out there and movements and spiritual things available to give you good advice. Not so good, but they claim it's good. What people really need is not more good advice. They need power. Power to change. Power to overcome habits. Power to follow Jesus Christ. Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew and to the Greek. That is, the Jew, the Gentile, it is for everyone. And again, when you discover the love of God, you're able to love yourself and you're able to love others as you should. Paul was not ashamed. Notice finally his personal experience of God's righteousness. He says in verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteousness of God. What is that? Well, I like the way John Stott puts it. Listen, quote, It is a righteous status which God requires if we are ever to stand before Him, which He achieves Himself through the atoning sacrifice of the cross, and which He reveals in the gospel, and which He bestows freely on all who trust by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, God gives you that new status. Christ comes to live inside of you. And that's what it means to become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus literally will live inside of you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we, through Christ, become the very righteousness of God. In Romans 4, later on, we're going to study about righteousness being credited or reckoned or imputed to us through Abraham. Ultimately, through Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it is Christ himself who has become for us our righteousness. And so Paul uses the expression, the righteousness of God, to contrast it with our own righteousness, which we are tempted in, to establish instead of submitting to God's righteousness. See, the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross, first and foremost, to take the wrath of God, which is owed to you and me, upon himself. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so Christ took the penalty of sin from your hands, from mine, and paid the penalty. But that's only part of it. He also died. So
so that when he was raised to life, he could clothe us with his righteousness. So when God looks at you, God looks at me, he sees the Lord Jesus because you're clothed in his righteousness. What a beautiful thing. Paul quotes from the book of Habakkuk. You know, at the time of Habakkuk, God's people were being carried away. And those who were carrying them away were under God's sovereign hand, the Babylonians. And so the Lord made it clear to his covenant people, you stay with me. It was faith that you exercised first to trust me. And it is a faith in a long-term sense that you walk with me. You can't get away from trusting me with childlike faith. From faith, from beginning to end, from faith to faith, Paul says in this passage. Your righteousness. We live by righteousness. Christ's righteousness. And we are saved by His righteousness. Let me ask you this morning, have you experienced these things? You can't share with other people what you don't or haven't experienced. And if you've never known how deep and wide and how vast is the love of Jesus Christ, I invite you today to invite Him into your heart. Trust Him. Ask Him to save you. And to manifest His righteousness in you. But you have to roll the dice and take a risk. Because that's what faith is. It's taking a risk with God. But you never lose when you do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Paul's pattern of fellowship and his pattern of evangelism. And to see a man who is dramatically changed by the gospel. And I pray, Lord, every one of us would experience that type of change. Whether we were raised in a Christian tradition or we became Christians later in life. Lord, I pray if there's one or two here, Lord, that are living in a manner that is inconsistent with God. That, Lord, you would invade their hearts that your powerful gospel, because of your love, would move on them. And that, Lord, you would do what you only can do, and that is convert a heart. I pray, please, Lord, move on hearts today. And, Lord, make us all bold witnesses for Christ as a result of your love working in our hearts through the power of the gospel. Lord, do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and glory for what you will do. Make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.